welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use any and all pronouns, and I am the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. During the month of July 2022, we're hosting a special mini-series examining the many legal issues specific to LGBTQ plus people subsequent to the recent Supreme Court decision, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on today's podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or Foundation. This is a quickly evolving area of the law, and today's conversation is being recorded on Friday, July 8th, 2022. Today's episode is the second in our Dobbs Rapid Response mini-series, and we'll be focusing on LGBTQ plus family formation and recognition. Today, I will be joined by attorney Brian Esser. His experience is both personal and professional as he is an adoptive dad. Brian Esser is a solo practitioner whose practice focuses on building families through adoption, surrogacy, and assisted reproductive technology. He is a founding board member of Equality New York, a statewide LGBTQI advocacy organization, a former member of the board of directors of the National LGBT Bar Foundation, where he served two terms as the board's president, a fellow of the Academy of Adoption and ART Attorneys, and a member of Legal's Family and Matrimonial Law Committee. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. Yeah, thank you, Shane. Happy to be here. It might be a helpful jumping off point to start our conversation today. If you could take a few minutes to kind of briefly explain the legal landscape in New York State for LGBTQ plus people seeking to add children to their family. We are really fortunate to be in New York uh, because New York has extended a number of statutory protections to LGBTQI individuals and couples um, as it relates to family building. So, you know, First and foremost, I mean, you know, marriage is not, you know, the sole source of, you know, rights in this area. But, you know, one of the things that I do, you know, like to talk to my clients about as they sort of, you know, you know, work through their, you know, post-Dobbs sort of, you know, uncertainties is, you know, starting from the place of, you know, marriage is protected here in New York. So, you know, our our state legislature, you know, enacted a marriage equality bill prior to the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell. So even if Obergefell were to go away and, you know, we can kind of bookmark that for later, um, you know, marriage would still be recognized in, you know, in New York State. So, you know, that's sort of first and foremost. You know, second, with respect to, to family building specifically, our Court of Appeals has for many years recognized the the ability of same-sex couples to adopt jointly or to adopt a, a spouse or partner's child. And that, you know, goes back to matter of Jacob, and that's, you know, roughly 30 years ago at this point. So, you know, it's a well-established, you know, right for for same-sex couples or LGBTQI couples. Uh, And then that was codified by by the legislature several years ago. So it's it's specifically written in that, you know, unmarried uh, couples um, are able to adopt jointly. Um, I think there's a requirement that they be intimate partners, but that's been, you know, interpreted pretty broadly. And then with respect to assisted reproduction, 
the legislature two years ago enacted what we refer to as the Child Parent Security Act, which was a whole suite of, uh, of reforms as it related to assisted reproduction. And, you know, it was drafted with the intention of being as LGBTQI inclusive as possible. So, you know, all the references to the extent possible are gender neutral. Um, so spouses, you know, don't have to be, you know, different sex. Um, and it's also marriage neutral. So, uh, you know, couples don't, you know, specifically need to be married. So the, the ability of, uh, of unmarried couples to, to pursue family building through surrogacy or, you know, donor conception is protected under our statute. And it's also neutral in terms of, um, you know, the number of parents. I mean, well, neutral in the sense that you could either be a single parent by choice or you could be a couple. Our, our statutes do not yet uh, specifically allow for uh, for more than two parents, although that is uh, an issue that is, you know, working its way through our courts. Thank you for that introduction. It sounds like there's quite the full range of options on the table for single parents by choice, unmarried partners, married partners, or couples as well. So right. from what I'm hearing from you, that would include IUI, Mm -hmm. IVF, yes. adoption, yep. surrogacy, foster Correct. care, biological yep. children, the whole gamut. The whole gamut. Yeah. You know, we're in as good a position as we can be in New York. So that's the good news. We love starting off with the good news, right? Yep. Unfortunately, let's turn to the bad news. Right. How does Dobbs shake this up? Let's start with ART specifically. How does Dobbs shake up the list of options on the menu for couples or single people hoping to use ART to either build or expand their family? You know, in New York, we should be okay. We, you know, we should be largely unaffected by Dobbs as, as long as you're you know, your family building journey, you know, occurs, you know, solely within the, you know, within the, uh, the borders of New York State. There's, there's a lot of scary language in Dobbs, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, discussion of, you know, fetal life and unborn babies and, you know, whatnot. But, you know, there's very much this theme of, um, you know, these, these are areas where, you know, people can disagree where you know states could make different policy decisions and um you know a sense that you know basically like the the supreme court's not going to get involved in that you know the the you know it, which is you know easy for them to say that they're just sort of going to pass on all of these issues and you know that they're just not going to get involved in them but um you know it's a little you know, how that plays out in practice, the idea that, you know, a, a 14th Amendment case will never be presented to them is probably unrealistic. But, um, you know, but, you know, to the extent that, you know, a family is working or individuals working with, a, you know, New York clinic, they should be largely unaffected that their that their ability to pursue family building as, um, you know, as they had originally planned should not should not be meaningfully affected. Now, that's fine as long as everything is occurring within New York State and you're using a New York clinic. Now, to the extent that, you know, that families are looking outside of the state. So, you know, possibly they're looking at uh, working with a fertility clinic in another state. You know, there, there is the, the potential that then that state's law is going to come into play. Similarly, if they're working with a surrogate in, uh, in another state to, to conceive via surrogacy, um, you know, this most certainly is going to, you know, have an effect on their surrogacy journey, ranging, you know, from things like 
you know, the surrogate's ability to, you know, to terminate a, a pregnancy to protect the life or health of the surrogate or the intended parent's ability to request that the surrogate terminate the pregnancy, uh, you know, because of, you know, some type of fetal uh, abnormality, you know, whether that's some sort of, you know, genetic issue or, you know, some sort of congenital, um, you know, issue with the fetus's development. You know, in those situations, you know, there could be a really significant, you know, impact. What happens to that family and the way they, you know, sort of experience their, um, you know, the pregnancy. That is a piece of this conversation that often seems to get lost is what happens when deeply wanted pregnancies go wrong. So what I'm hearing from you is there's a lot more uncertainty on the table for families, individuals, or couples who are either, number one, hoping to leave the state of New York during a pregnancy, or number two, are working with either providers, surrogates, or insurance policies as well. Let's add that to the table outside of New York State. That's right. I mean, if, you know, if a family is working with, uh, you know, with a surrogate in Texas, I mean, you know, the, the, the way that Texas statute is drafted, it's so broad and it has that bounty provision. And I've read that statute multiple times. Uh, you know, I'm really uncertain about, you know, if, you know, say like I, you know, had a surrogate in Texas and, you know, we get to the 20 week ultrasound and, you know, we find that, not common, but like a situation that occurs sometimes is like, you know, organs are developing outside of the, you know, the fetus's body. There's no way to resolve that, right? I mean, that's, that's not a viable pregnancy to then ask that surrogate to go to another state to terminate the pregnancy, you know, in a state where, you know, that would be legal, um, you know, whether that's New York, Colorado, Illinois, you know, pick a, you know, pick a, you know, convenient state, you know, that could subject, you know, the, the intended parents, you know, me as the intended parent to that, um, you know, civil liability to that $10,000 bounty, as well as, you know, anybody else who helped to, you know, participate in, you know, moving the, the surrogate from, you know, Texas to another state to, to have that procedure done. Do you think this will discourage folks from serving as surrogates? It may Discourage some folks, yes, definitely. Um, you know, some individuals in those states uh, definitely could. I, I think, you know, right now, what you know, what I'm seeing in the questions, a lot of the questions that I'm getting, and the conversations that you know I'm having with my newer colleagues is, do we advise our clients to avoid? you know, working with surrogates in certain states that, you know, that have trigger laws that have already taken effect, um, you know, are in states that, you know, have a high likelihood of, um, you know, of banning abortion in um, the coming, you know, weeks, months, and even years. I mean, you know, because a surrogacy doesn't happen at a specific point in time, right? You know, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a long process to have a surrogate medically cleared to, you know, to, you know, be assured that, you know, this person is a good candidate, that there's not, you know, unreasonable risks to the surrogate's life or health as part of, you know, in carrying a child for another family. You know, so so there's that process, then there's the process of drafting the legal agreement and making sure that all the different types of insurance are in place. And then, you know, pregnant nine months of pregnancy, right? So we do kind of need to take the the long view. And so even if you look at a state with you know that has all you know Republican control, you know, in um in their state legislature, you know, but haven't yet acted to you know to revise their laws in light of you know Dobbs you know you've got to kind of 
put on your, you know, you got to get out your crystal ball and sort of look at like, well, what do we think the likelihood is going to be in, you know, 14 months, 16 months, you know, for that state and you want to take those risks. And, you know, increasingly, you know, I think a lot of my clients are saying, okay, I don't, I don't want to risk some of those states. And, um, you know, I only want to look at, you know, states where abortion rights are protected. And, um, and so that's a lot of the, the conversations that we're having right now. That's an excellent point in terms of the time frame. This is not a fast process on no. even something as simple as an IUI. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think for, you know, for other types of, um, you know, reproductive care, like, you know, for the types of family building, like, you know, like an IUI, which is an intrauterine insemination. So, you know, typically that would be um, a person with a uterus decided that they wanted to carry a pregnancy either with a partner or on their own and, you know, undergoing a procedure, you know, where, you know, sperm is you know, placed in the in the uterus during a period of time when the, the person is likely to, you know, be ovulating and be able to conceive. If if that person, if you were to have that IUI procedure done in, you know, in a, you know, quote unquote, bad state, in a hostile state, like if you were to go to Texas to have that procedure done, but then you were planning on, you know, you lived in New York, the, the likelihood of the, the Texas law applying to you is, you know, I would say low. If you're not a Texas citizen, you're not domiciled in Texas. If, you know, your only connection to the state of Texas is that you, you know, had that procedure done there. Um, you know, that's, that's not likely to, you know, to affect you, uh, you know, unfortunately, should something go wrong with the pregnancy. Do you have concerns about leftover IVF embryos just because we are really talking about long-term here and sometimes families move and sometimes families dissolve or reconfigure. So where, where would that leave us if we were a hypothetical couple that had leftover embryos in New York state, maybe continued or didn't continue to live in New York state after a divorce? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So, you know, in you know the 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 process of IPF, and this is you know one of sort of the the, the criticisms of it in um, you know in some corners, you know, particularly very you know religious conservative corners, is that you know often a you know person undergoes a, an egg retrieval, and you know the you know they produce as many eggs as they do, you know, so it could be, you know, one or two, could be, you know, a dozen, could be more than a dozen. And, you know, so often, you know, a, a number of embryos are, you know, are formed as part of this process, you know, uh, you know, families often, you know, hope to get like six, eight, 10, you know, to, to really make sure that they have, you know, options, um, you know, and really have the ability to, you know, to form the families that they hope to. And so, Many of these families, because this is such an expensive process and it, you know, takes a very long time, you know, they're, they're hoping to have, you know, one, possibly, you know, two children. And so then, you know, when you're done with the process, you end up with, you know, with leftover embryos, with unused embryos. And then families are, you know, are faced with the decision about, you know, what are they going to do with them? And, you know, some, some people are, you know, pretty confident about, you know, the size of their family, don't anticipate wanting to have more children. And then, you know, they make the decision to, you know, discard those unused embryos. Um, some people choose to continue to, you know, to cryopreserve them for, you know, for a period of time, you know, just this sort of, you know, an insurance policy, you know, just in case. And also sometimes because of, you know, maybe not, maybe indecision isn't the right, um, you know, isn't the right term, but just sort of an uncertainty about, 
you know, what to do with them. You know, maybe they don't consider, you know, the embryos to be like children, you know, people, but, you know, they also feel like, you know, it's, it's not just sort of, um, you know, it's entitled to, you know, they, they give it a certain weight, you know, I'm, I'm a little, you know, cause it can vary so much, you know, from person to person. I don't really want to put words in people's mouths, but, you know, people sort of, you know, are faced with a certain amount of uncertainty about, about how they, how they want to treat them. And so then they'll continue to cry to preserve them, you know, and then there's a small number of people that choose to donate their embryos to another family. So if you're, you know, in New York and, you know, you've made the option and you made the decision to continue to cry or preserve your embryos for a period of time, New York, I would say we're pretty unlikely at any point in time to, you know, enact a, a personhood, you know, statute that would, you know, sort of, you know, give, you know, some sort of uh, legal significance to the, you know, to the embryo, you know, sort of declaring it a person such that it would, you know, make it, you know, illegal to, you know, discard an unused embryo. Um, now, that's, you know, that's New York, and that's, that's where we are. There's, there's been a fair amount of movement over the years towards trying to, you know, declare uh, an embryo a person, you know, a legal person uh, uh, under the laws of, you know, different states. There have been ballot initiatives in like uh, Mississippi, I think Oklahoma as well. Some of those have failed. Some of those have been tossed out under the sort of the previous row, um, you know, regime because it's been sort of viewed as a backdoor to, you know, to banning abortion you know, as well as just other legislative efforts that have failed. I think Arizona has gone the, the furthest in terms of, uh, you know, personhood legislation. Realistically, a, a possibility that we're going to see more movement in the future on these types of, you know, personhood bills. You know, in many ways, the, the Supreme Court has sort of left open the door for that, you know, that they didn't take a position on, you know, on personhood. But, you know, they have said that, you know, their decision is not based on any view about when a state should regard prenatal life as having rights or legally cognizable interests. Now, if that doesn't sound like personhood to you, I mean, like, it certainly does to me, you're at least leaving open the door for that. And, you know, they're not... They're not saying that they're ready to go that far just yet. Um, and, you know, do I think there's five votes for personhood? I, I don't know. I'd be a little surprised. But what I think they're definitely, you know, leaving it open for states to legislate in that area. So, you know, to, but then kind of Shane, to your, to your question, like, so say you form embryos in New York and, you know, then you move to Arizona. And then you, you know, you say to your clinic, okay, we don't want to use those embryos anymore. You know, what happens then that, you know, it's, you know, are, have you, have you violated Arizona law by, you know, directing somebody, you know, by being an Arizona resident and directing somebody in another state to, to discard embryos? Um, I don't know. I mean, that's a really, you know, that's a, I, you know, I'm just a, just a humble family law lawyer. I don't, you know, I don't practice, you know, criminal law. Like that's kind of, that's a little bit beyond my pay grade, but I mean, there's that sort of classic law school hypo, right. Of, you know, if, you know, somebody stands in state A and shoots a person in state B under some theories, you know, the, the person could be prosecuted in both states for murder. So, you know, could you be prosecuted in Arizona for, you know, for destroying, you know, unborn life if you have your embryos discarded? 
I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a question that you know courts are going to have to you know sort out in the future. You know, if that's a road that they choose to go down. Mm, you've certainly broadened my hypothetical, right? Because I was thinking only in the context of divorce, but you're right. Families move around, things change, people take different jobs. And what happens if there's still the embryos in the freezer, so to speak, when those decisions are made, divorce yeah. or not? Divorce or not. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. And in the context of divorce, I mean, you know, our, our courts have been pretty clear that, you know, they, they'll, you know, they'll uphold a, uh, an agreement. I mean, it's cast v. cast. It's an older case. The CPSA sort of tweaks, you know, things a little bit, but, you know, basically the, the court of appeals has said, you know, if you have a, you know, a writing about who gets the embryos in, you know, in the event of a divorce, we're going to uphold that. And, you know, the CPSA has modified that a bit to say, you know, if, if somebody's going to use those embryos that the, the other spouse or partner, you know, needs to consent to them being used to conceive a child. But, um, but, but generally speaking, we're going to enforce a, uh, you know, a, a written preconception, you know, determination about, um, or, you know, pre-embryo formation determination about, you know, what the disposition of the embryos is going to be. Fascinating. One of the other issues with IVF, as you discussed, there's a lot of unpredictability in terms of how many embryos that you can make. The flip side of that is how many embryos will take, right? right. Because you may end up with one, mm-hmm. two, three, octomom. So right. yes. what, what happens in terms of the availability of um, selective abortion to be able to carry a safe pregnancy going forward with IVF? Right. Yeah, uh, what's also sometimes referred to as selective reduction. Yeah, um, yeah. The, um, so, in part, the you know advances in medical technology have reduced the instances of those sort of higher order multiples. Is you know kind of the the phrase that um, you know that uh, has been used. That um, increasingly the recommendations are for you know a single embryo transfer. And you know they're they're under limited circumstances. Uh, you know doctors will do a a two embryo transfer. It is virtually unheard of uh, to do, you know, to transfer, you know, three or more embryos, you know, in the octomom situation. I mean, that, you know, that doctor lost his, you know, medical license. And, you know, I think it, you know, there, you know, some of the other, you know, situations where that kind of, you know, where those things have happened, um, you know, there's the potential for, you know, ethics investigations and, and things like that. It's just not the, it's just not the standard of care anymore. But, um, you know, but could a state, you know, prohibit um, selective reduction under its abortion statute? I, you know, say most certainly yes. I think, you know, most states would, um, you know, would view a selective reduction as an abortion. Um, and so that would be, you know, that would be a similar, um, you know, risk that, you know, frankly, that people would, um, you know, face working with a surrogate in another state. So that's yet another reason why people should, you know, really be focused on doing, um, you know, single embryo transfers. Thank you for that update in the current medical landscape as well. I know you're not a doctor, but this has been really interesting to learn kind of the both lenses of yeah. this process of family formation. Before we kind of turn next to adoption, I wanted to see if there were any other surrogacy issues that were on your mind that you wanted to flag in light of the Dobbs decision. 
you know, there's a there's a couple. I mean, you know, in terms of surrogacy, I mean, you know, in IVF sort of more broadly, I mean, you know, at this point, like, I don't, we're not hearing that there's a lot of states that are looking to, you know, ban IVF, um, you know, things like that. So it's unlikely that, you know, these types of issues are really, you know, gonna, gonna surface. Um, but, you know, there's, um, you know, there's, there's some interesting language in the, um, you know, in the Dobbs opinion, talking about the prevention of the, the states might have, you know, legitimate interests in regulating, you know, abortion. And one of those interests could be the prevention of discrimination on the basis of race, sex, or disability. The disability piece is, you know, kind of interesting because it's not, it's not as if the Supreme Court has ever been, you know, particularly friendly to, you know, disability rights. So, you know, this is, this is a bit of an outlier, but, you know, one of the, one of the common reasons why, you know, people might terminate a pregnancy and even, you know, very much a wanted pregnancy, even, you know, later in the pregnancy. So, you know, after, you know, 20, 22 weeks, you know, post viability, you know, is because of, you know, some type of, you know, genetic screening or, you know, something else, which we talked about that, you know, that does show, you know, some type of, um, of disability. And, you know, there's different types of screenings that can be done, you know, on frozen embryos to, you know, to screen for specific conditions, you know, and so whether that's like, um, you know, Tay-Sachs disease, Huntington's, or, um, you know, sickle cell, you know, to specifically identify, you know, those embryos or, you know, or even, you know, testing of a, you know, of a pregnancy, you know, of a, you know, of a fetus, um, you know, as well as, you know, for chromosomal issues, um, you know, like Down syndrome is, you know, very, you know, one of the more common trisomies, but then there's other trisomies as well, um, you know, that are inconsistent with life. And, you know, so if, if we're going to see states regulating in the area of saying that, you know, that, you know, abortions can't be done or, you know, perhaps like IVF screening can't be done, um, screening for different types of embryos and those types of conditions, um, you know, that, that potentially makes, um, you know, IVF much more, you know, burdensome and dangerous and, you know, particularly in certain states. And so then again, you'd want to be focused on, you know, what the, the legal regime is in the state where you're, uh, you know, where you're forming your embryos and where your embryos are, are stored, you know, and then, you know, short of, you know, banning IVF, I mean, you know, we could look at, you know, we could potentially see, you know, restrictions on who can, you know, do IVF, you know, is it only going to be restricted to married couples, you know, you know, or, you know, specifically heterosexual married couples, you know, and then, you know, also what types of, you know, procedures can be done, you know, there could be, you know, we could see restrictions on, you know, egg donation, potentially, and, you know, while I think, you know, many people kind of think like, oh, that's, you know, really just an issue for, you know, for gay men, but, you know, that could potentially have a burden on, um, you know, people who want to build their family through reciprocal IVF. So like, you know, one partner, you know, contributes the, you know, the ovum to form the embryo. And then that, you know, uh, embryo is transferred to the other partner, depending on how, you know, a ban on, you know, egg donation or something like that is drafted, uh, you know, it could have that type of specific impact on LGBTQI families. Really wide ranging effects here. Mm-hmm. So let's turn to adoption. Okay. We've seen a lot of chatter about adoption post dubs. We saw the terrible, we will adopt your baby memes yeah. on social yes. media. Yes. 
Can you talk a little bit about how adoption has been understood or perhaps better misunderstood in the Dobbs analysis? Right. Yeah. I mean, let's just start with sort of the the bizarre footnote about or or line, I guess I think it's not necessarily a footnote, but about how safe haven laws um, you know, sort of solve the the abortion problem because if a person, you know, doesn't, you know, is pregnant but doesn't want to parent, all they have to do is, you know, surrender their child, you know, pursuant to one of these, you know, safe haven laws, you know, which you know, which sort of designate, you know, a number of places where, you know, where a person can go and, you know, safely, you know, relinquish custody of a child. And a lot of the times those are places like police stations or fire departments or, you know, possibly a hospital, um, depending on the statute, you know, which is just completely contrary to, you know, how adoption really is practiced in this country at this point in time. I mean, you know, gone are the days when the pregnant person went to, you know, sort of the, you know, an unwed mother's home, you know, like, you know, out in the country or in another state and, you know, finished the pregnancy there. And, you know, then the the child was just sort of like, you know, taken and then, you know, placed with adoptive parents and, you know, the the birth parent and, you know, the adoptive parents never met each other and, and things like that. I mean, that's, that's sort of the vision of adoption in this opinion, which, you know, is not at all how, you know, adoption is done anymore. And, um, you know, it's just really, it's just really striking. I mean, you know, given that you have, you know, two adoptive parents, I mean, the Chief Justice and, you know, Justice Barrett are both, you know, adoptive parents, you know, on some level, I would think that they would have more, you know, understanding and compassion for how adoption actually happens in this country now. And yet they don't. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really peculiar to me. So, you know, there's, there's that, um, you know, there's some of the memes I, I do think are a little, you know, odd in the sense that, you know, they sort of, um, you know, some of like the, the costs associated with, you know, private domestic infant adoption, um, you know, saying that like the fees could be as high as like $120,000. I mean, I, I suppose that's possible. I, you know, I personally have never worked with an adoption that, you know, that has, um, you know, where sort of like the all-in costs for the adoptive parents are that high, um, you know, that's, that's easily, you know, double and, you know, sometimes triple what I think, you know, most of my clients end up spending, you know, for, for an adoption, um, you know, so, so, so there's that piece of it, but um, I mean, I guess really what I should say, you know, we should talk a little bit about like, so what does adoption, you know, typically look like in, you know, in the United States for, you know, for sort of a, a, a private birth parent placement adoption. Typically, the, you know, birth parent makes a decision to, or expect an expected parent makes the decision to, you know, consider adoption. And, you know, they would either reach out to an adoption agency, you know, to, you know, to get counseling and, you know, other types of support services, or they might reach out, you know, directly to, um, you know, to, 
you know, hopeful adoptive parents who have, you know, created some sort of profile, uh, you know, for the purposes of, you know, matching or connecting with, um, you know, with an expected parent. And, you know, then there's a process of sort of, you know, getting to know each other, making sure that it sort of like feels like a, you know, good fit that, you know, they have sort of similar ideas about what they, you know, want from the arrangement. Um, you know, there's, there's supportive counseling that would be offered, you know, where, you know, where the expected parent would be, you know, given sort of their full range of options, you know, whether that's, you know, terminating the pregnancy, if that's, you know, permitted in their state or, you know, permitted at the point in time where they are in the pregnancy, as well as, you know, like other options, like, you know, do you have a family member who, you know, can either help you or, you know, would be available to, you know, raise your child? Um, do you need help getting on, you know, different types of public benefits? Um, you know, just the, you know, the full range of options, making sure that the expected parent knows that they don't have to, you know, make the adoption plan if they don't feel like that's the right decision for them. You know, there's also legal counseling, you know, so discussion of, you know, what the, what the expected parent's legal rights are, you know, and it's only once, you know, sort of like all of this has, you know, happened and, you know, after the child is born, you know, then the, 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 you know, birth parent signs, you know, a consent to the adoption or, you know, a surrender. Sometimes they have to appear in court. Sometimes they don't. This is an area where adoption law, you know, adoption law varies wildly from state to state. You know, it's, it's totally different, um, you know, depending on the jurisdiction. So there's a lot of variation in terms of how that, that occurs. And then they also, you know, in many states have a period of time to, to basically change their mind, to say, to revoke that consent or that surrender and, you know, ask for a return of, you know, custody of the child. So, so to say that, you know, the, the way adoption should occur is, you know, for, you know, for this person who has gestated a pregnancy for, you know, for nine months, given birth, had the baby discharged, you know, from a hospital to them, and then, you know, just then go from the hospital to the fire department to like, you know, drop off the child, like that is completely bonkers. And, you know, not at all the way, not at all the way things work. And, you know, my other adoption colleagues and I, we just like sort of roll our eyes and shake our heads and think like, what, you know, what is going on here? This is just not, not realistic. Yeah, thank you for also giving us that framework, talking about how there's been a progression moving away from closed adoptions to open adoptions. I hear what you're saying, you know, safe haven laws were not something that were available across the country at the time of Casey or Row, but mm -hmm. these are really intended for gestational parents in crisis because as right. you point out like we don't want to see the police station or the firefighters being in the business of adoption right. on an ongoing right. basis exactly i mean it's just it's yeah yeah i mean and you know i'm it's not to say that you know those safe haven laws i mean like you're like you're saying Shane, it's not to say that though that they don't have a purpose you know i mean because they they very much do but i mean it is you know, they, they really were designed, you know, so that people weren't sort of abandoning their children in, you know, in unsafe ways, um, you know, that it, it was, you know, you know, that the haven is both for, you know, for the, the, the baby, you know, but also for, you know, for the parents who allow them to, you know, to make that decision and, you know, surrender the child in a way that's not going to, you know, have any, you know, downstream consequences for them legally. So you know, sort of criminal implications. But in any event, not to address the bodily autonomy piece of right. choosing to carry a pregnancy. Right. Any other thoughts about 
how Dobbs is going to impact adoption going forward? This is again a place where, you know, sort of the, you know, the Dobbs and Obergefell piece, you know, how they're going to, you know, potentially, you know, interact with each other and what the interplay is going to be. Um, you know, I mentioned before, that, you know, in New York, unmarried couples have, you know, had the, the ability to adopt jointly, um, you know, for, for many years and, you know, first, you know, through a court of appeals case and then, you know, that was codified. Uh, there, there's still a number of states that don't allow unmarried couples to adopt jointly. And so if, you know, we found ourselves in a situation where the, you know, where if we followed, you know, Justice Thomas's concurrence and, you know, the Supreme Court revisited Obergefell, you know, and found that not to, you know, be constitutionally supported, um, you know, and, you know, then you had a New York family that wanted to adopt a child from, you know, from a state, you know, like, let's, I pick on Alabama a lot, but, um, you know, for, for reasons um, that, you know, and so they, they wanted to adopt a child from Alabama, you know, Alabama could view them as, you know, not a married couple, and, you know, it could complicate their ability to accept the placement, they might have to, you know, have their home study rewritten so that, you know, just one of the partners is, you know, is the adopting parent, and then the other part, the other uh, spouse is, you know, sort of, uh, you know, like a roommate, you know, which is, you know, sort of like what happened in, you know, in the pre-Obergefell world. And, you know, these were, these were things that, you know, that social workers and courts, you know, were willing to sort of like, you know, kind of hold their nose and, you know, go with, um, you know, just in order to, you know, in order to, um, you know, get the, get the placement done. But, um, you know, who knows if, you know, if New York social workers are going to be open to doing that again. I mean, you know, if the New York courts are going to, you know, support that kind of, um, you know, the, those types of legal fictions. Um, again, it's really, you know, it's, it is, you know, truly hard to say, you know, and then once the adoption is finalized, then, you know, I think we could have questions about, um, you know, amending birth certificates, you know, after the adoption, um, you know, that was the, that was the Adar case um, from the, from the Fifth Circuit, that case is about 10 years old, but basically it was a gay male couple had adopted a child from Louisiana, um, they they finalized the adoption in New York, and then wanted to have Louisiana issue a birth certificate in both of their names. And you know, Louisiana said, "We recognize both of you as the as the legal parents of you know of this child. There's no question about that. But you know, your New York court cannot direct our Louisiana vital records to issue a birth certificate in." you know, in both of your names, because, you know, I mean, it was a little sort of like, because reasons, you know, like it was because we wouldn't do that, you know, under Louisiana law. Now, you know, since Obergefell, it has been, you know, all, all states have more or less, you know, fallen in line and said, okay, we will, you know, we will do this, we will amend the, the birth certificate to reflect, you know, both parents in a same-sex couple, um, you know, but we could, you know, fall back on a situation where, you know, where states wouldn't do that in, um, you know, in the post-Dobbs, post-Obergefell world. Do you want to speak a little bit about the difference between a judgment of parentage versus a second parent adoption and kind of what 
the new consideration might be for standard practice in light of Dobbs now? Yeah, 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 I'd be happy to. So, you know, it is still the recommendation of all of the, you know, the major LGBTQI legal organizations, advocacy organizations, um, LGBT family law scholars, like, you know, and practitioners that, um, that, that parents confirm their, the parentage of, uh, of a child born to a couple, um, you know, with the assistance of, you know, most commonly a sperm donor, but also an embryo donor potentially, um, by obtaining some sort of, you know, court order. New York doesn't require a court order, particularly for married couples, um, you know, for both, for both spouses to be on the birth certificate. Um, you know, married couples are, you know, entitled to the, uh, to the marital presumption. So, you know, they're, they're both recognized as parents. In New York alone, the marital presumption is pretty strong. So it's hard to, hard to rebut. It is much easier to rebut in many other states, um, you know, which is why it is important to, to, to get that court order that's entitled to full faith and credit. So New York has two options. Uh, we've got the a, a judgment of parentage, and then we also have second parent adoptions that, that remain available. Um, I recently attended a very good uh, CLE presentation at the uh, at the Quad A uh, conference, and we're we're gonna we're hoping to to try to get um, the the speaker to to repeat the uh, presentation for the Family and Matrimonial Law Committee. So stay tuned on that. Um, and uh, you know, basically, you know, his was uh, Professor Nijame from um, from Yale Law School, and you know, he said. You know, an order is an order. It, it should not matter if it's a judgment of parentage or if it's a second parent adoption. Um, you know, the, the the judgment of parentage is much easier to obtain. Um, it's only been available for a little over a year. It was part of the, uh, the, the set of reforms that came with the Child Parent Security Act. And, you know, it's just couple page uh, petition to the court saying, you know, we planned this pregnancy together and, you know, please recognize the non-gestational parent as, um, as a legal parent to the child. Versus the second parent adoption requires a home study, it requires a criminal background check, child, you know, child abuse clearance, a number of health certifications. It is a much more long drawn out process. Um, it is, you know, functionally equivalent to, you know, the child not being you know, genetically or gestationally related to, you know, to either parent. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty involved, um, you know, and the judgment of parentage, you know, is much more attractive to, you know, to many of my clients. So, you know, I am still advising folks, and it still seems to be the, the record, the, you know, kind of general advice that, that a judgment of parentage should be sufficient still um, for, you know, for most families. I mean, I think the second parent adoption is relevant if, you know, if you have sort of international recognition concerns. So like if um, the, you know, if the family needs to obtain citizenship in another country or there's like visa, you know, situations that, um, that might come up for them in the future, you know, there could be reasons why the second parent adoption would be more beneficial under some of those circumstances. But, you know, even in light of Dobbs, it, it should be the case for most families that the, that the judgment of parentage will meet their needs. Well, that's good to hear. It is. Yeah, we're, I mean, this is, this is one of the sort of like 
good news kind of moments that's, that's coming from this conversation. We need those. We, we need do. those. We sure I have do. one more bad news moment before we wrap up. I wanted to think about, because we, we've talked about in, on the prior episode and then today about reading Dobbs in tandem with some of the other Supreme Court decisions and where that might lead for LGBTQ plus parents and people. I want right. to take a moment to pause and think about reading Dobbs and Fulton together. Right. A lot of folks listening may remember the Fulton decision last year holding that the city of Philadelphia violated Catholic social services right to free exercise under the First Amendment by excluding Catholic social services from the foster care program due to their refusal to certify same-sex couples as foster parents. And we know that LGBTQ plus people are overrepresented as both children in the system and parents mm -hmm. participating in fostering. So I wanted to see if you had a few minutes to talk about your thoughts on the intersection between Dobbs and Fulton. This is a tough one. I mean, it you know, it's sort of first blush, they seem like they're sort of, um, like they, they both sort of touch on, you know, issues of, you know, family building and reproductive justice and, you know, things like that. Um, it is a little bit difficult to kind of, to draw a lot of connections, but I mean, I think sort of like the, the biggest connection that I, that I draw for them is just sort of, you know, how, you know, religion and religious ideologies sort of, you know, uh, you know, do sort of, present some sort of like through line here, you know, and, you know, Fulton was all about, um, you know, you can't have, uh, you know, like excessive, um, you know, considerations of, you know, religion and, you know, we can't discriminate against, against religion is kind of the, you know, some of the themes that have come out. I mean, there's the, the case about, um, uh, you know, this term about um, the, the way, uh, funding of you know certain types of high schools in you know in maine that was one of the cases and then there was the the football coach um you know who who wanted to pray you know after a football game at the 50 yard line there's very much an erosion right of the wall of you know separation of church and state and you know i think you know dobbs sort of represents this and you know so do you know all of these religion cases that you know that, that these sort of religious viewpoints are given you know much more you know, weight than they ever, you know, that they have been, you know, probably in the last 50 years, which is not to say that, you know, that, you know, religion's ever been like fully absent from, you know, from Supreme Court jurisprudence, but, you know, it, it is, you know, becoming ascendant, you know, it really is something that, um, you know, that sort of infuses a lot more of these decisions. And so, you know, I think that there's, you know, there's a way in which, you um, you know, like the Scalia dissents in, um, you know, Windsor and Obergefell, which just sort of dripped with this sort of like, you know, anti-gay animosity of like, you know, well, of course, you know, like this is, you know, this goes against like millennia of, you know, of Christian teaching. And, you know, of course, a state could, you know, ban same-sex marriage um, because of, you know, Christian teaching that, that really seems to be going away, you know, that, you know, that the Dobbs is all about, you know, like, well, yeah, you know, like people think that's wrong. So like you can, you can ban abortion. Um, and, you know, that's, that's sort of the same idea in full, right? Like Catholic, you know, Catholic social services thinks that it's, you know, wrong to have a child raised by a same-sex couple. So, you know, why shouldn't they be able to exclude, uh, you know, same-sex couples based on, you know, their, their religious beliefs? 
Mm-hmm. And we also kind of see, you had talked about earlier, the, the lack of understanding for the practicalities in terms of how adoption plays out with dogs. Yeah. We Similarly with Fulton, we see the lack of understanding for how the foster care system plays out for LGBTQ plus parents. Right. And also, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll get on my high horse on Fulton. I mean, like if, if anybody thinks that like that, you know, that like LGBT foster parents is sort of like their end game, you know, with, you know, in, you know, for, for Catholic social services, like, I don't, I, I hope, you know, I mean, I hope it's not the case that then, you know, they, you know, that they're, you know, going to provide differential treatment to, you know, LGBTQ youth, it, you know, that they provide services to, or, you know, or uh, biological parents that, you know, that they're, that they're providing services to. I mean, you know, it's, I think it's really understudied, you know, the treatment of, you know, of queer identified uh, biological parents in, in, the, in um, you know, the foster care system, and the child welfare system. Um, you know, there's just, there hasn't been as much attention paid to it, but um, if, there's a lot of research that sort of points to the idea that, you know, that they do experience a lot of, you know, uh, differential treatment. Can Fulton be extended to, you know, address that? Probably. I mean, you know, it remains to be seen. Well, there's certainly been a lot of uh, points of unexpected good news in our conversation today, and there's been a lot of troubling uncertainties as well. Any parting thoughts? Parting thoughts are, like you said, there's a lot of uncertainty, but, um, you know, there are things that people can do to protect themselves. And so, you know, those are, you know, making sure that, you know, their, their house, legal house is in order. So, you know, get that judgment of parentage or second parent adoption, um, you know, make sure you have wills and, you know, advanced directives and healthcare proxies and things like that. Um, you know, cause those, you know, those things should be portable and, you know, in many ways, the, you know, the advice, um, you know, that people are giving is, you know, sort of do the same types of planning that you would have done before Obergefell. And, you know, you can do those things and you can be proactive and, um, you know, like life is uncertain and, you know, there's, there's a lot to be, you know, kind of fearful of, but, um, you know, there are steps that you can take to protect yourself and your family. Thank you. That's very empowering to hear. Well, thanks again so much for joining us today. And thank you as always to our listeners. Please like, share, and continue to find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Join us next week for our third Dobbs Response podcast, where we'll be joined by Harvard Law Professor Alejandra Carabayo to talk about the decision's impact on access to gender-affirming healthcare and digital medical privacy.